Okay, uh, we left off uh, where we're going to pick up talking about Crusader Jerusalem, or as one student a long time ago in another class once called it Crusadian Jerusalem. It's not Crusadian Jerusalem, it's Crusader Jerusalem. Um, so let's, let's pick up there. Shortly after September 11th, <laughs> shortly after September 11th, President George W. Bush spoke on the South Lawn of the White House, this is September 16, 2001, talking about what he's going to do to get back at the people who bombed the World Trade Center, or who crashed into the World Trade Center and knocked it down. And among one of his most famous quotes and most unfortunate quotes was this, this crusade, this war on terrorism, is going to take a while. And he used the C word. Okay. Now, crusade, the word crusade is now entered into our, our, our common, uh, common jargon as any kind of, we're going to go get him. Okay. But the word comes from, from the word for cross. And the word is actually a reference, technically a reference to the period we're going to be talking about. Specifically, it's a reference to Christians fighting against non-Christians in the name of God, killing them in the name of God. Okay? So you might toss around this, oh, he's on a crusade to get a better grade, or he's on a crusade to, you know, to find a girlfriend or something. We use it kind of commonly like that. But in a specific sense, the word is from the word cross, crusade, and it means Christians uh, fighting some kind of holy war. The Christian equivalent of a jihad, right, against non-Christians. And of course, as soon as he said that, and he did this many times, our, our former president, as soon as he said this, the, the Islamic world was enraged. They all said, aha, we knew it. I told you so. And of course, uh, President Bush immediately apologized and said, that wasn't what I meant. It's not. This isn't a, a religious war. But it was all that was needed for the Islamic world to, to come up in arms. Now, here's another quote. Okay? The one below is a, is a quote from an Islamic uh, jihadist. The great devastation inflicted on the Iraqi people by the Crusader Zionist Alliance. Or later on, we issue the following fatwa. What's a fatwa? It's a religious decree from some kind of religious leader. Uh, um, it's, a, it's an order to command. And it's usually a command to put someone uh, under a death sentence. So we issue the following fatwa to all Muslims. The ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for all Muslims who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it in order to liberate, why, why put the Americans under a fatwa? In order to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Mosque back up from their grid. This was uh, uttered by, uh, years earlier, None other than Osama bin Laden. And then, of course, the September 11th attacks were said to be part of this. Part of this thought was to kill Americans whenever you can. Why? Because he is also referring to the period of we're about to talk about, and that is um, the Crusades. Christians came killing in the name of God. Remember, we, we had this fundamental transfer in Christianity from uh, a pacifistic religion for the most part, I mean, everything we, we know and taught about Jesus is turning the other cheek, and, and if somebody sues you, you let them have it, type thing. And just, just we're not, uh, we're not of this world. We're in this world, but we're not of it. You know, we're, our, our kingdom is somewhere else. 
to we're going to conquer in the name of Jesus. We're going to spread culture in, the, in Christianity in the name of God by killing the infidels, right? by killing Muslims and Jews. Osama bin Laden sees America and he sees Israel, the modern state of Israel, as an alliance. Now we do give them a lot of, the US gives them a lot of money and they say, you know, Israel wouldn't exist without American support. This is his idea. So that attacking Israel, killing Jews, or attacking Americans is in a sense fighting the good fight on behalf of the Islamic Jihad. And so uh, bin Laden issued this decree. Because there are American military bases in Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is where Mecca is, right, the holiest city in Islam, we need to drive the American troops out. They're defiling the Islamic holy land. And because there are Jews in Jerusalem, which should be Palestine, according to bin Laden, uh, we need to drive out the Jews, since they're one and the same with the Americans. So he issued a fatwa calling on all Islamic jihadists, anybody willing. Right? Now, again, most Muslims look at this and go, that's nuts. Just like we would look at anybody who says, let's go kill all the Muslims or all the, anybody who's not like us, we look at them as nuts. Okay? But bin Laden's appealing, making an appeal, and the appeal rests on the Crusades. And George Bush made the unfortunate mistake of using this word in response to that, which only flamed the fire. So what are the Crusades? Um, this, this battle between what we call East and West. Now keep in mind, Islam is, a, is considered a Western religion. The three Western religions being Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. As opposed to Eastern religions. As opposed to uh, Asian religions. Shintoism and Confucianism and Taoism. Um, all the, all the Eastern Buddhism, all the Eastern religions. Uh, and it's because it has this, this Western idea. And as we'll see, Islam actually spread into Europe and into Spain, like we call them the Moors. Um, and of course, uh, they're based on the same God, right? The same God of all three religions. So we, we consider it in religious terms a Western religion, although we consider today this area called the Near East and the Middle East. And so uh, many great scholars have written on this clash between what is now East and West, or between Islam and Christianity, between Western culture and this Middle Eastern culture. Some people view um, what Americans are doing uh, with, what, you know, with Christian, modern Christianity and entrepreneurialism and capitalism as just, it's just evil. Right? It's wrong. Corporations ruling the world. We need to get back to a fundamentalist religion, you know, focus on God. And, Whereas people on the left, people on the American side, will look back at Islam. It's what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq as, well, that's backward and that's old-fashioned and why would we want to go back in time, right? But there's a fundamental, fundamental rift between East and West, between Islam and Christianity and Judaism. Let's, let's, it's not just those two. And people have been trying to explain this for a long time. And again, a lot of this goes back to the period we're, we're going to talk about, the Crusades. Um, just to give you an overview here, we talked about the early Islamic kingdoms on, on last Thursday, which brought us up to the point of the Crusades. We'll be talking about yellow today. Don't bother to write it down. Just we're, we're going to go through it all. Um, and then on Thursday, we'll talk about the later Islamic periods and bring us right up to modern, to modern times. Um, some of the, the key points, and I will, again, I'll put this on a study guide for you so that you can study it for the final. What we're going to want to talk about, um, Godfrey de Bouillon, 
1099, basically conquering Jerusalem for the Christians. And then Baldwin uh, becoming the king of Jerusalem and, and establishing a kingdom of Jerusalem about 100 years, a short-lived one. Um, and then we'll talk about uh, Saladin, who comes in in 1187 and takes back. Basically, he routes the Christians at the horns of Hattin. I, I forgot. I have a picture standing up on top of it, over, but I didn't put it in the PowerPoint. I'll try to go back and put it in and then repost um, the PowerPoints. Um, and then he takes back uh, for the Ayyubids, um Jerusalem, and then we'll talk about the struggle, the ongoing struggle between the Ayyubids and the Christians in Jerusalem, for Jerusalem. Uh, Richard the Lionheart shows up, and then at one point, the Muslims take back over, drive out the Christians, and dismantle the walls of Jerusalem. Where have we seen this before? Where have we seen this? <coughs> yeah, the Babylonians, right? They, they not only burned down the temple, but they knocked down the walls, which prompted Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books, to talk about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. They dismantled the walls. And once the walls are dismantled, and this is why we're fast-forwarding so much, it just, it just became a, a, a backwater city. It became a city where there were Christians and Jews and Muslims, but it was an Islamic city until, until very recently, until last century. And then there were a lot of other little crusades, the Fourth Crusade, Fifth Crusade, Sixth Crusade, but they didn't really amount to much. Yeah. Which of the walls were dismantled? Like all the outside walls or like? The uh, yeah, the, 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 what we would know today is the outer walls. Okay. Which, so like, some of them were, some of them were, we saw gates that have been repaired. And like the Western Wall was left alone? The Western Wall would have been an inner, would, is, remember the Western yeah. Wall is the wall, the question is, was the, the Western Wall is the wall of the Temple Mount. And that was, that was retained. Okay. We're talking about the walls that surround the whole city. Remember, the, the Byzantines, this is a key point, the Byzantines basically moved Zion, remember Zion moves around, from the eastern hill to the western hill and builds all the new churches over on the western hill, Church of Holy and things like that. Uh, what we'll see, one of the key points we'll see is that the Crusaders um, are intent on taking back the eastern hill and reclaiming the eastern hill for themselves. Uh, but yeah, the, the Temple Mount remains standing. Got this? Okay, so what were the Crusades? Um, they were, in a, in a sense, a holy war. In just about every sense. Yeah. They were they were specifically battles between Roman Catholic forces. This is post-schism. This is after the separation, the formal separation in church history between what is Western Christianity, Rome, Western Christianity, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Christianity or Orthodoxy. So after the schism, or about that time, the schism. Um, but pre-Reformation, before Luther comes around and creates every other denomination under the sun, which starts it off, right? The Lutherans and then the Baptists, all this. Pre, pre the Augustans and all those, um, we have Christians battling Muslims and other political enemies of the popes. Keep in mind that the Christians also fought with the Jews. I mean, it's often cast as Christians versus Muslims, but they were fighting anybody, uh, in, including other Christian groups that the Pope didn't like. Okay. Crusaders took solemn vows, and they were granted penance for past sins, including indulgences. Uh, we'll talk about indulgences. These were kind of um, forgiveness of sins, if you will. Now, Martin Luther, we talked about Luther with the, with the Reformation, 
Martin Luther, one of his key reasons to oppose the Catholic Church and reform, we call it the Reformation, to reform Christianity and form what is now today known as Protestant, a protest against, Protestant, a protest against Roman Catholicism, uh, was the sale of indulgences, the abuse of indulgences. Basically, you can pay in advance, you know, get some token, get some indulgences, and then you can go sin all you want, and then instead of paying for your sin, you just use your, you call in here. He didn't like this idea. At this time, it was basically, what if you, what if you committed some grave sin? What could you possibly do to atone for yourself? Right? <laughs> um, some people today would say, well, you just ask for forgiveness. And, and Jesus, Christians among Christians, would say, well, Jesus will forgive you. Not necessarily so back in the day, although it may have been so. That's not the way the church handled it. So what could you really do to prove that you wanted to atone for it? You could go on a crusade. You could take a vow, and you could go fight and die for Christianity. Okay? So the Crusades are, in essence, an attempt to recapture the Holy Land, but specifically Jerusalem, from uh, the Mohammedans, as they were called, but from Islam, from Muslims. And they were launched in response to the continued westward expansion of Soviet Turks in Anatolia. Uh, Anatolia. Anatolia is modern-day Turkey. Okay. So Islam is getting bigger and bigger and spreading. Right? There, uh, many scholars have argued that Muhammad, what Muhammad did with Islam is unite all the Arab tribes. All of these Arab tribes had all these different pagan religions, you know, uh, uh, religions, different idols, and they worship different things. Islam is said by many to be the, a, a religion that united, just like Constantine used Christianity, some say, to unite Western Europe under one single king instead of the Tetrarchy. Uh, many scholars say that Muhammad, uh, or Islam was used, not necessarily by Muhammad, Islam was used to unite all the Arabs. And they just got bigger and bigger and bigger and spread into Europe. So they've already spread into northern Africa from Saudi Arabia, right? To Saudi Arabia, and then all the way over and then up into Spain. The Muslims in Spain we call the Moors, right? The Moors, and they basically went up into the Iberian Peninsula, and then of course they're going working northward up the eastern Mediterranean coast, and they're going into modern Turkey. And once you cross um, Istanbul, which is what is now today Istanbul, now you're in mainland Europe. And so once they start to take uh, Anatolia, the Christians, the, the Western, all the different kingdoms in the in Europe, begin to say, "Oh, we better we better stand up to this." So a lot of the Crusades was an attempt to fight back against the, the spread of Islam into Europe. Any questions so far? Okay. I'll put this all up here so you can write it again. You can always print this out. It's up online. I'm sorry I got it up there late, but it's up there. You can print it out. There are all kinds of arguments for the causes of the Crusades. Let's look at a couple of them here. One, again, we just said it was a political reason. It was a reaction against the expansion of Islam. It began to gain a foothold uh, in Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, and then up into France, and also coming from the east towards the west through Turkey, through Anatolia. So we wanted to stop that. They wanted to stop that. Uh, Islamic, there was also one of the reasons, yeah, what's one of the reasons people say for the Civil War? And what's the pat reason? Why did the United States fight a civil war? And you always say the one word, slavery, right? And then you get into advanced high school and college, you realize, well, yeah, slavery, but it was also about industrialization and, and uh, you know, what, what direction we're going to take as an economy and things like that. 
there's a great episode on Simpsons where she was trying to go into all this, and the teacher says, just say slavery, so we can move on to things. One of the reasons for the crusade that was given by many Western Europeans uh, is the Islamic slave trade. The uh, Arabs were actually uh, had a very lucrative slave trade, and it wasn't just non-Arabs. They traded other Arabs. Um, they traded, you know, it wasn't based on color or anything. And they traded, they had a very large slave trade that was in the Mediterranean and working its way up into, into southern Europe. We also see um, a change in the role of Rome. You know, Rome is the Vatican, or specifically the Vatican. Um, Rome, there was always this kind of separation between church and state. You have a question? I'm sorry. necessarily opposed to slavery. They still had some, some of them uh, enslaved. And, um, but it's someone else doing slaves. And so someone else is committing sin. Someone else is doing something which you consider grievously evil. Well, we, that's a reason we can go after. Forget the fact that we might be doing it too. Right? It, it, was, it was a reason given. I don't want to say an excuse, but it was a reason given. There was kind of this separation between church and state. There was a, there was a secular kingdoms, all these different kings and dukes and all these different uh, princes that ruled all these different little uh, areas. Um, and then you had the church. And you had a controversy called the investiture controversy. And what it basically was about was there was kind of this rule that said um, the local kings are in charge of appointing and investing, right? Uh, uh, giving the symbols and giving the, the pointing to the office of the local bishops. Okay? And the church said, no, no, no. Uh, and, and the quote is this. Um, uh, because the church was founded solely by God, there's only one ruler and there's only one pope, the pope was the single universal power. That is, Rome tried to grab power of all Western Europe, not just the religious power, which they had for the most part, but also the political power. So this really was a seizure, a, a combination of church and state. It was an attempt to grab the, the secular political power of the state, uh, as well as the religious power. And they did that by trying to directly appoint all the bishops and all the different, all throughout Europe. And then they would all, of course, owe their allegiance and their power, their position, to the pope. And the pope would, in a sense, become the single theocratic ruler over all of Europe. At least that was the fear. So if you're a local prince, or if you're, if you're a local king in one of these European uh, countries, um, you don't like this. You don't like the pope interfering with your sovereign uh, rule. And so there was, a, there was a debate about that. But Rome is, is trying to make a claim to, to administrative power as well, which culminates in uh, Pope Urban II calling for a crusade. Okay? In 1095, and we'll look at that in just a second. Um, you begin to see um, Christian pilgrim crusading was a form became a form of pilgrimage. So we knew that Christian pilgrims would always go to Jerusalem. They would make a pilgrimage just like Muslims would make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Christians would go on a pilgrimage, and sometimes they were attacked, or sometimes they were robbed on the way. Stories of this were always, of course, reported back. See, we can't go. It's not safe to go to the Holy City anymore because those Muslims are attacking us. And word gets back, and that becomes another reason, yet another reason uh, to, to 
go fight for this, to protect the pilgrims. Protect the pilgrims. So everything you're going to see, everything is going to be couched in religious terms. But I would argue what it really is, is an attempt, not just for religion, but for, you've got this old split between the, the Islamic, the, the old Persian, the old Persian, the old Arab countries, and then, and then what is now Western Roman culture. And you've got this, they're, they're kind of fighting. It does take place about Turkey, you know, Eastern Europe, the Near East, which is where Jerusalem lies. So that becomes the point at which they're trying to assert influence. So Jerusalem is in this crossroads between two warring cultures, the East and the West, if we can use that term loosely. And Jerusalem lies at the center of that. So you begin to see pilgrimages, especially Psalms, in the book of Psalms, the Hebrew Bible, Psalms that talk about pilgrimages to Jerusalem are now adopted by Christians. And they're going on a pilgrimage. And they become militant, right? It's now the crusade is a form of pilgrimage. Not only are we going to go and praise God, but we're going to go fight for God and take back Jerusalem from the Muslims. Um, and then we, we hear a lot of the things we talked about in Eliana, the holy geography, which we'll look at in a bit. And then this becomes the center of the earth. They fully recognize Jerusalem as the axis of right? the navel of the earth. And Jerusalem becomes idealized. There's a real Jerusalem, but it also becomes this mythical, as we've seen throughout this class, this mythical ideal that you fight for Jerusalem. It means nothing. It's just an old city that nobody really cares about. It's not really that important of a city. It never really has been. Right? And yet in the ideal mind, it means everything. It's so symbolic. It has so much history behind it for three phases that whoever controls that city can be said to control, you know, God's on their side, at least at the time. So this little this little city that really isn't that significant means nothing, and yet it means everything. And I think they captured on that line in, they did a movie 10 years ago or eight years ago called Kingdom of Heaven, which talks about some of this, and some of it's accurate. Uh, that's a nice way to say it. And uh, But they, they captured it. It means nothing, but it means everything. So that's the idea of a real and ideal Jerusalem. There were also religious reasons, and, and I mentioned some of these here. Um, it was a reaction to persecution. At least that was the excuse that was given. It was a reaction against persecution of Christians. Of course, Al-Hakim, we left off with this, destroys the Holy Sepulchre in 1009. There were also there was oscillating uh, Islamic leaders in Jerusalem. Some of them were very tolerant, pluralistic, and they accepted Christian. Uh, Christianity and Jews in Jerusalem, even though they, the Muslims controlled it. Others would get upset with something and would destroy a Christian thing. Anytime you take out uh, any religious monument, that's that's a fighting words. Remember I said about the, the Dome of the Rock, there are some Jews and even some Christians who want to take down the Dome of the Rock and rebuild the Third Temple. And I said, the day that happens is World Wars 3, 4, and 5. Right? Just, just don't do it, please. Um, you start knocking down people's religious, it just gives people, it just inflames, it just inflames everything. So when he knocked down the church always up, you've got another reason or excuse to go and take it back. And as I said, Jerusalem just wasn't that important of a city. It just, it, Rome had taken over as the religious center. Uh, Christianity had moved very much into a Western, uh, very Western religion. Um, there was Eastern Christianity, but they, for the most part, got along somewhat with uh, the Muslims. Um, but um, if Rome had taken over, Jerusalem just wasn't that big a deal. Some scholars will argue that there was also a socioeconomic reason uh, behind it. And you, 
and some are, some scholars will argue against this as well. But it's called the phenomenon. Of, we call it the phenomenon of the second or third sun. That is, in, in uh, Middle Europe, um, the oldest son would inherit everything. But I've often I've often um, made this. You know, if you have a million dollar, and, and the best example of this is uh, Sam Walton. You guys know who Sam Walton is? Who started Walmart? Okay. So Sam Walton was worth $25 million, let's say, back you know, 20 years ago, right? or $25 billion, I, I don't care, stay with my analogy. He had five kids. So Sam Walton is the most uh, wealthiest guy on the earth at the time. I mean, there's somebody behind him that's got $15 million, and somebody behind him that's got $14 million, and somebody's got $10 million. Sam Walton has five sons, or five kids, and when he decides to split up his inheritance, he splits it in equal five ways. How democratic, how fair, right? And now everybody gets five million dollars. But what happens to the, to the Walton family? They're no longer, they're, they're now, you know, he split it up five ways and the kids became the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh richest people on the earth. But someone else is now the richest person on the earth and would have control. So in order to guard against that, in the time period we're speaking of, the eldest son would get everything. And the second, the third sons would would work for the oldest son. But that way, all of the prestige and the money and the cloud and political power within a family would stay. You would still have 25 million or billion dollars, right? Sam Walton could have given all one son and told the other four sons, you work for the oldest son. And that's how it worked, okay? So if you were a second or a third son, you didn't have your own possessions. You didn't necessarily have political power. So what could you do? What could you do to make an increase of Well, one is you could go on a crusade. Now, some scholars argue against this, but you basically have a socioeconomic reason for it as well. You don't find too many eldest sons going off to fight the war. It's usually the second or the third sons that really have nothing. And some scholars have drawn uh, an analogy to modern armies. What's the argument? What's the sociopolitical argument about, let's say, for instance, the U.S. military? Who makes up our armed forces? What's that? Poor and uneducated. Poor or uneducated. You, you see, what do we know about wealthy political people, people running for president? And I won't name names, but people, lots of them running for, running for Senate. What do we know about their military service record? There's John McCain, right, who, who's made a career out of being a, 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 you know, a POW and things. But what about a lot of our other politicians? Yeah, the Coast Guard, or they dodged the drug. Nothing against the Coast Guard, nothing against working in the reserves or they dodged the draft. They didn't want it. They got a, they got a deferment went to college. What do we know? Mo most oldest sons, most of the kids of rich and wealthy don't serve in the military. And so you end up with, I would say, not necessarily the uneducated, but, but a lot of poor people, a lot of minorities, people who really don't have a lot here. So they go into the military as, a, as an alternative. They can get a good job. There's, there's food. Now, they have to risk their lives and fight for you and I. But that's part of the job, right? And so we see this similar thing. A lot of times, the US Army is criticized for paying all the poor people fighting for all the rich people. And one could say something similar is going on here. You've got the, the sons that don't really have a lot of wealth or clout politically are going to go off and make a name for themselves fighting on behalf of God, receive their fame and fortune. Or it could have been a religious purpose. They committed some great sin. How do you find redemption? And this was the, this was the uh, the movie, the movie, this was the, the reason for him. He wanted to go to Jerusalem so he could be forgiven. 
I'll fight and I'll kill on behalf of God, and then that way I will be forgiven. And in this sense, it's not unlike the popular notion today of Islamic jihadists, right? What do jihadists tell people who go and blow themselves up? Suicide bombers. When you die, yeah, you'll, you'll be in paradise and you'll have the virgins and all that. And we, we kind of look at that and go, really? Is that how it works? You kill other people and you're rewarded? Well, if you kill them in the name of God, you're rewarded. That's, that's the thought. But that thought didn't originate with modern Islamic terrorists, right? Modern Islamic militants. It's been going on for a long, long time. And in this regard, it's Christians going to fight against Muslims. Pope Urban, you need to know about. Pope Urban, um, there were, there were um, Alexius I uh, appeals to Pope Urban for mercenaries. He basically, he sees the Turks coming, um, the Muslim armies, pardon me, coming, um, and he says, you know, please send us troops. Um, the Byzantine Empire was defeated, led to the loss of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. This is in 1071. The Moors, this is, these are the Muslims that were in Spain, mostly southern Spain, were beginning to be driven out by mostly Christian armies, by European armies. So he appealed to Pope Urban and said, you know, basically send soldiers. And in response, um, Pope Urban II issues a decree and basically starts what we know today as the First Crusade. And I'll read it to you here. Now, listen, I want you to listen very carefully for the language Jews. Remember, this is the Pope, right? It's a religious leader. A religious leader. For you must hasten to carry aid to your brethren dwelling in the East, who need your help, for which they have often entreated. Wherefore, with earnest prayer, I, not I, but God, exhort you as heralds of Christ to repeatedly urge men of all ranks whatsoever, knights as well as foot soldiers, rich and poor, to hasten to exterminate this vile race from our lands and to aid the Christian inhabitants in time. If somebody gave up and gave a speech like that today, they'd start a war. Well, they did it back then too, right? He's, he's literally starting a war. And he's using racism, he's using uh, uh, religious tensions to prompt people into war. I address those present, he continues. I proclaim it to those absent world where Christ commands it, right? So this is not I, the Pope, but Christ himself commanding it. For all those gathering here, uh, there will be remission of sins if they come to the end of this better life while marching by land, crossing by sea, or fighting the pagans. This I grant to all who go through the power vested in me by God. Essentially what? If you take up arms and fight and die, in this crusade to wipe out this, what he terms a vile race, then you automatically get forgiveness of sins. Does that sound familiar? Instant paradise if you die on behalf of a Christian crusade. What we see going on today is not new. Right? Let those who are accustomed to wantonly wage private war against the faithful, Christians were often fighting European states, were fighting amongst themselves, March upon the infidels in a war which should be begun now and be finished in victory. Let those who have long been robbers now be the soldiers of Christ. Who's he appealing to there? Those of you who are fighting other European or caught up in these Christian versus Christian or you know Western, why don't you all unite and go fight those guys 
and you'll get instantly saved, instant salvation if you die. But those who have been hirelings for a few places of silver now attain the eternal reward. But those who have been exhausting themselves uh, to the detriment of the body and soul now labor for double glory. They on the one hand will be the sad and the poor, on the other hand the joyous and the wealthy. Here the enemies of the Lord, there his friends. So he's appealing, to, it's basically a call for mercenaries. He's appealing to the poor, he's appealing to the, the, you know, a lot of these people who are robbing and fighting and doing, causing all this commotion. Go fight those guys. Go fight the Muslims. And I'll forgive you of all your sins. Or your sins will be forgiven. Because I, the Pope, have power over you. Pope Urban's speech. Um, they moved. It, it, react, it resulted in what we call today the First Crusade. From Europe, by sea, but also by land, um, to uh, northern, uh, eastern coast of the Mediterranean, and then down to Jerusalem. Now, the idea was to take back all of the land. Remember, um, uh, Muslim armies had moved all the way in, here, this is modern Turkey here, all the way across, up into Europe, right? We already had the Moors up in southern Spain, right, which came across from northern Africa, right? So they want to come back and take back this region here, which is the separation, basically, between Europe and Asia. There was also a second crusade, okay? This was Bernard of Clairvaux, and he writes, um, by the way, uh, Bernard, Bernard um, there, was a, there was a schism, there was a, a fight that broke out within the church, and he was appointed to, to judge over this, this fight, and so he, and, and he resolved it, so he became quite influential. One of his students, one of the people that, that studied under him, ultimately became Pope. So Bernard was called upon to combat heresy and to, to do some other things, to, to fight, on, to work on behalf of his friend, the Pope. And the Pope later commissioned Bernard to preach the Second Crusade. So St. Bernard is important for your exam, but among other things, so that you should know, for the Second Crusade, the Second Attempt. To Hugh, Knight of Christ and Master of Christ Militia, Bernard, in name only, Abbot of Clairvaux, wishes that he might fight the good fight, and he goes on to say, thus in a wondrous and unique manner they appear gentler than lambs, yet fiercer than lions. Right? These are Christians, right? Gentler than lambs, like the Bible says, and yet fiercer than lions, like we want them to be. I do not know if it would be more appropriate to refer to them as monks or as soldiers, unless perhaps it would be better to recognize them as being both. So here, here you have the, the vision of the Christian soldier. Indeed, they lack neither monastic meekness nor military might. What can we say of this, except that this has been done by the Lord? Right? It's always couched in, God wants you to do this. Um, and it's marvelous in our eyes. These are the picked troops of God whom he has recruited from the ends of the earth. The valiant men of Israel chosen to guard well uh, and faithfully that tomb, which is the bed of the true Solomon. Right? Uh, each man, sword in hand, and superbly trained to war. So you get a call for yet a second crusade. And again, it's couched very similarly in protecting and defending Christians in the Holy Land, in our city, right, in Jerusalem. So here's a little, a little brief summary. You have the first crusade, and I won't go into all the details of each crusade. Um, what I will do for you, remind me to do this if I, if I forget, 
I will go in on the class website and I'll give you some links to each of these characters here. Godfrey of Moyon, Raymond of Saint Gaud, of Guild, Bohemond of Toronto, and you can learn about, or you can watch the movie and get some of the history. It's, of course, it's, it's a fiction, right? It's a historical fiction, so it's not all correct. Um, but you can see about the taking of Jerusalem. Okay? But know this, uh, at the end of the First Crusade, um, Jerusalem conquered by Godfrey, uh, Godfrey Bouillon in 1099. And I believe it's his brother, uh, Baldwin I, becomes the new king of Jerusalem and establishes the kingdom of Jerusalem. So the Christians succeed in taking Jerusalem after a long siege. They break in and they had a lot of battles and bloodshed. They break in and they take Jerusalem back for Christendom. Okay. And they establish a very short-lived, only approximately a century, the kingdom of Jerusalem. And um, we'll, look, we'll look in just a second at what the Christians did to Jerusalem, because that's what we're interested in, in Jerusalem, not necessarily the history of the Crusades. Um, for, for a period of time, the Christians and the Muslims coexisted in the Holy Land. Now, it wasn't a pretty battle. It wasn't a pretty, when Godfrey Boyon went in, he from the slaughter folks, right? He slaughtered everyone, Jews and Muslims, to take back the city for Christianity establish the kingdom, and then they say, okay, now we're slaughtered y'all, now we can all live in, in peace and quiet. Um, but later on, the Muslims began to, well, we don't like this, so they're going to get revenge, and they're going to come take back. And they conquered uh, the town of Edessa, and so a second crusade was called for, and we already looked at that by Bernard of Clairvaux. And at one point, the Muslims say, enough of this, it's time to take back Jerusalem. So the next key figure is an Islamic figure named Salah Adin. Salah Adin. And he fights this very famous battle at the Horns of Hatim. This is in, overlooking the Sea of Galilee in the north. Remember, Jerusalem's down here. The Sea of Galilee's up in the north. He's coming to Jerusalem, and he fights this battle. He just routes the crusaders at the Horns of Hatim. And now it's just a straight shot to Jerusalem. Um, after the Christians surrendered the city, now we'll, we'll wait and talk about Tel Aviv in a second. Basically, and the movie does capture this, um, when Salah ad comes in, the Christians ultimately surrender the city because they know they're beat, uh, and he, he agrees to let them save passage back to Akko and then, and then away. He doesn't slaughter everyone. Okay? And so even in Western or Christian cultures, Salah ad-Din becomes kind of this this example of chivalry. This this real he could have slaughtered us like the Christians slaughtered. He could have slaughtered the Christians like the Christians slaughtered uh, the Muslims when they came in, but he didn't. He said, "I'm taking the city. This is an Islamic city, and uh, you're you're free to go. You're free to stay." And let them go. Um, We'll talk more about Saladin in just a second. Everybody have this? So these are some these are some key the first crusade, second crusade, Baldwin, King of Jerusalem, and
And again, I'll put links to all of these and you can go in the dead. We just don't have time for class to do it. Anybody writing their paper on the Crusades? A few of you? A couple of you? I'll put these resources up there. Maybe look over them before you finish your paper. Okay, can I move on? You good? I mentioned this idyllic vision of Jerusalem, the city of God where we would go and all these pilgrim songs and all this beautiful city. And we've seen these traditions in the Jewish traditions, in the Christian tradition, and in the Muslim tradition, the Islamic traditions. But here's what William, the Archbishop of Tyre, says about Jerusalem. It was impossible to look upon the vast numbers of the slain without horror. Everywhere lay fragments of human bodies, and the very ground was covered with the blood of the slain. It was not alone the spectacle of headless bodies and mutilated limbs strewn in all directions that roused the horror of all who looked upon them. Still more dreadful was it to gaze upon the victors themselves, dripping with blood from head to foot, an ominous sight which brought terror to all who met them. It was reported within the temple enclosure about 10,000 infidels perished. When you hear about violence in Jerusalem, they say, well, this is the way to solve it, or this is the way to solve it. Keep in mind, I know I'm getting into next week's lectures because I want to get there, but this, the, the, the fights that we see in Jerusalem today are very, very deeply seated historical tensions. It's, it's couched, we see in this class how the mythos of Jerusalem grows over time. We'll claim to Jerusalem and, and claim to the Holy Land is steeped in this. And anyone who says, we can go in and solve this problem by just doing this and this and this, doesn't understand how far this goes back. And the point of this class is to show you how far this goes back. It has been a vicious city at times throughout the ages. On both sides, on all three sides, for that matter. Today it's basically Jews and, and Muslims, Palestinians and Israelis. But the Christians are knee-deep and have blood, well, not just blood on their hands, but head to foot, according to old accounts, old Christian accounts. Now, what did the Crusaders do to Jerusalem? How did they change it? One, they did what Eliada tells us always happens with new um, buildings, with new religious architecture, right? They took existing Islamic uh, buildings and changed them modified them. Right? So they changed the Dome of the Rock into the Temple Domina, right? the, the Temple of God. And they changed the Al-Aqsa Mosque to the Temple of Solomon. Right? And, we'll, and we'll look at a few pictures of Solomon's stables. Remember, <coughs> Solomon didn't build those stables at Herodian. Has been in Herodian. Um, they don't go back to Solomon, but the tradition that they went back to Solomon was there. And the Christians, the Crusaders came in and they just accepted that tradition. So they're trying to stamp Christianity on these Islamic monuments. They also uh, rebuilt many of the Byzantine churches that were destroyed. For instance, they rebuilt and expanded the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They rebuilt the Church uh, of the Ascension. There was the Church of St. Mary, the Church of St. Lazarus, you get the point. And uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we saw 
Byzantine Christianity expand Jerusalem from the eastern hill to the west. Remember when we saw the Madaba map? The Temple Mount was relegated to the, to the very top, which was the eastern portion of the map. It was no longer the center of Jerusalem. It was the eastern top part of the, of the map. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the western hill, kind of took over as the center of the city. The Crusaders are going to go back and try to wipe out Islam, not only by killing Muslims, but by and, and Jews, they killed a lot of Jews as well, but to take back the eastern hill, right? To take back those monuments to Islam on the eastern hill. So they're going to stamp out the Dome of the Rock, they're going to stamp out the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they're going to build churches on the eastern side. In fact, they built other new churches. Instead of just rebuilding churches, they built all kinds of new churches. We'll talk about the Armenian quarter a little bit next week. The Armenian quarter is established. Remember, the Armenians are the earliest peoples to adopt the whole people uh, Christianity before the Romans did. And 42 other churches have, have been identified as belonging to Crusader period Christians. So it's the same thing we saw with the coins. Remember the, the Hasmonean, uh, pardon me, the, the Bar Kokhba coins? You want to stamp out the people that were there and you want to replace it with yourself. You, you modify existing monuments, you rebuild churches that they destroyed, and you build new churches and expand them. Let me show you. Let me show you a, a graphic representation of this here. Do we have this? Here is Crusader Jerusalem. Here's our, our image that we're familiar with. Here's the, the Temple Mount over here. Right. So this was called the Patriarchs Quarter, modern day Christian Quarter. Yeah. You've got the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where stand is where the hospital is. We'll talk about the hospital in a second. Um, the Tower of David, basically this western <coughs> Joppa Gate area here, Tancred's Tower. Uh, some of the other, there's lots of monuments over here. We don't need to know them all, but you do need to know the Church of Holy Sepulchre. So that became that quarter there. The Templars' quarter, the Templars we'll talk about, we'll briefly mention, and I'm not going to talk about the Da Vinci Code, and we're not going to do all that stuff. The Templars, we'll talk about it in a second. What I want you to know is that the Templars basically took up the Temple Mount area and tried to convert it back to a Christian or to a Christian uh, uh, place. That was kind of their quarter there, which is why they always get chosen to be that. I mean, they were there and then they disappeared, and that anytime somebody disappears overnight, they're great for um, taking out uh, conspiracy theories. They take on all these conspiracy theories. Of course, modern day Masons, anybody familiar or study Masonry? Uh, masonry uses the Temple of Solomon as their fundamental, um, that's, that's their representation. Kind of like the Shriners, you guys know the Shriners with the hats and march on the parades and they built hospitals and stuff. The Shriners adopted the mosque, right, um, early on. And so that's why they have the big curved sword and they have the, they wear the fez, the, the Turkish fez. Um, but the, the Masons adopted the Temple of Solomon. And all of the symbolism within masonry goes back to the Temple of Solomon. This is why uh, many conspiracy theorists say that the Templars became the Masons. Because the Templars also, early on, took up kind of the Temple Mount and Solomon specifically as their, as their central image or icon, the, the thing after which they patterned themselves. So they converted the Islamic monuments on the, on the Haram um, to Christian monuments. 
there was the Syrian quarter, and remember there was a schism between Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity. So this is kind of Syrian uh, Christianity here. Uh, after they kicked out the Jews, they came in and took up this, and this is what modern day what? What quarter is this in modern Jerusalem today? The Islamic quarter, the Muslim quarter. And then of course, the Armenians. And this is still to this day the Armenian quarter. Down here, this is modern day Christian quarter. This is their modern Jewish, Jewish quarter here. And then of course the temple. And this will be on the slide, you can print this out. I probably, just, just to put you at ease, I won't ask you, I'll ask you the modern quarters again, probably, on your exam. I won't ask you these quarters. I'll ask you monuments within the city, but I won't ask you to memorize these, these crusader quarters. Um, did I already show you this map? Did I already show you this? Um, basically, this is what the crusader kingdom looked like at its height. Remember, it was only around for about a century. But you've got all of these uh, Islamic armies, you've got uh, basically Arab uh, peoples here, and they're coming from, the, the Crusaders are coming just along the coast, and along the Mediterranean, sailing to it, and they're just trying to take back Jerusalem. It becomes pretty evident that they're, they're using, I would, I would argue, if you don't like it, too bad, that they're using Christianity as this, this excuse, if you will, as this symbol, which is why we're talking about it. Um, for kind of Western culture. We're the good guys. See, we control Jerusalem. Because the rest of what is, you know, modern Europe and, and Western culture is to the West. But they want to come into the East, and they want to just take this area here, the Holy Land, you know, where Jesus lived, according to the Christians. Because that symbolically means they have conquered or have power over Islam. And Saladin shows up and says, okay, Jerusalem's not that big of a deal, but it's everything, ideologically, in the mind, in the mythos. So we need to take it. So he takes it. Um, the, the Crusaders made maps. The buildings made maps. So here you have an illuminated manuscript. And if you ever get a chance to go see, they have them at the Getty every once in a while, just in the rhetoric, but they, they, they used to make these absolutely beautiful uh, illuminated manuscripts you know, before the printing press. They would write these things and then when they draw these pictures. Well, here's Jerusalem, right? Very Christianized Crusader Jerusalem called the Hague Map from about 1170. Um, but you can go through and look at this map. We, won't, we don't have time to do it, but like we did with the Monoma map, and you can find all the different places, um, the, the things that the Crusaders did in the city. Now, Let's talk just for a second about the Templars. And I want you to know about the Templars and the Hospitallers. Um, they were an order of knights founded in 1118. And there's a coin. Here's a, here's a coins. We like coins in this class. Um, here's a coin of two poor knights, right? Two poor Templar knights sharing a horse. And it's the idealism that you know, we're, we're just in this together. We're brothers. We're going to go fight and defend God and all this stuff. Um, I put this one on the course website. Bernard Carbeau wrote, wrote a thing called The Praise of the New Knighthood. And he said their quarters indeed are in the very temple of Jerusalem, which is not as vast as the ancient masterpiece of Solomon, but is no less glorious. Truly all magnificent of the first temple lay in perishable gold and silver, polished stones, precious woods, 
whereas all the beauty and gracious charming adornment of its present counterpart is the religious fervor of its occupants and by the well-disciplined behavior. Did you get that? Right? Solomon's temple was about material things, gold and wood. But the beauty of this new temple, which is now in ruins, right? They're trying to rebuild it, but they don't have the money to fill it up. Is in the fervor, what did it say? In the fervor of its occupants and their well-disciplined behavior. Because they're more zealous for God, that's what makes the temple better. In the former, one could contemplate all sorts of beautiful colors. While in the latter, one is able to venerate all sorts of virtues and good works. Indeed, holiness is the fitting ornament of God's house. One is able to delight there in splendid merits rather than the shining marble, and to be captivated by pure hearts rather than by gilded panel. In a sense, it's extolling the virtue of the faithful. Basically saying, a temple should not be about the gold and the silver and the way it's built, but should be about the people in the temple, the virtue, hopefully, of the people in the temple. Now keep in mind, these are soldiers. These are, they're Christians, but they're Christian soldiers. They're knights, right? But in the end, they're fighting for Christianity. So, and you can, in some other class, debate whether or not um, this whole idea of a just war. Uh, we don't have time to go into it, but the idea was, early on in Christianity, before Pope Urban II gave his speech, there was a lot of debate about whether it's okay to fight on behalf of your faith. Is there ever a such thing as a just war? That's the big issue. And they wrestled with this. And they wrestled with this throughout the Crusades. But the fact of the matter is, the people who won out said, yes, there is, and here we go. And they went and fought. And of course, it has caused all kinds of problems, I would argue, for Christianity. Not only at the time, but even today. This, this concept of we're going to fight on behalf of God or on behalf of Christ and we're going to do something on this earth and we're going to kill and fight for Jesus. And now, um, it, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, it's, uh, anytime you fight, use violence, it's only going to bring about violence in the other folks and then you have holy wars going on, like we have today. Going back to what Bin Laden and Bush said, Bin Laden's always going to blame the Crusades for this, and Bush, by making an appeal to the Crusades or using that, that loaded word, just perpetuates that. But it goes back to it goes back this whole class, but especially it goes back to the Crusades, the fights between the Christians and the Muslims. I also want you to know the hospitalers. They were a community of mostly French Crusaders living in an area called the Muristan near the Holy Sepulchre. You can still go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, and you can see some of the hospital buildings and, and go around there. Uh, they had land dedicated by Pope Pascal II, and they are called the hospitalers. Guess what? Yeah, okay, good. They built these really, really big hospitals and tried to take care of the poor, which I would argue is what, in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, uh, people of faith are told to do, basically take care of the poor, take care of the sick. This would be a more ideal um, notion of Christian service rather than killing in the name of God. How about helping people in the name of God? But I digress. Uh, after the First Crusade, I will mention that it did become a religious slash military order, had its own charter, 
and it was later charged with the defense of the Holy Land. So they did ultimately become a military thing. It's, it's inevitable. And again, you can go to another class, not in here, but another class, and argue whether uh, churches or states need to have a, a military. You know, again, we mentioned this a week, uh, week ago. Name one country that doesn't have a military, that doesn't have some form of defense, that still exists. And don't say Switzerland, I've got a knife, right? I've got a Swiss Army knife. I already use that joke, it's not funny anymore. Um, um, you know, must a state provide defense? And then the next question is, much, uh, must a church, or must a mosque, or, or much, must uh, any faith uh, provide, its own, provide for its own defense? At this time, they were fighting for their lives, at least they thought they were, and so they militarized. There were a couple of order, other orders, Teutonic Knights. These are the German version of the hospitalers, the Order of St. Lazarus. I wouldn't worry about them too much, but I want you to know that there were other orders, lots of different competing orders uh, in Jerusalem at the time. All right, let's see what they did to Jerusalem, and then we'll call it a day here. Um, we mentioned that they converted. So this is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But during the Crusader period, it was called the Palace of Solomon, because it sits over here by Solomon's Stables, right? And they referred to this area. Remember, what were these? What are these buildings here? Come on, somebody. Administrative buildings. From whom? Whose administrative buildings? Umayyads, yeah. Good. Umayyads and Umayyads. Good. And then, of course, the Dome of the Rock became the Temple of the Lord. So they converted the, the Haram, Haram al-Sharif, to um, a Christian, and the Templars took up residence here. Let me show you another image here. This is another way to do it. So the Templars took up area here. One going rock becomes the Temple of Omni, and this becomes the Temple of Solomon, Temple of Solomon. I mentioned Solomon's Stables. I'll let it sit for three seconds, and then I'll move on, because I'm trying to move forward here. The Solomon's Stables were, were said to be uh, up on the southern end of the, the Temple Mount, and so yeah. Um, did they like get rid of the Islamic writing in the Temple Mount? Not to my knowledge, no. They may have. I, I don't know the answer to that question. They may have. It wouldn't be a bad idea. Did they read Arabic? I'm sure some of them did. Um, does anybody know the answer to that? Did they take down the Islamic writing around the Dome of the Rock at the time? I don't know. I don't think so. But I'll look it up. Um, the Dome of the Ascension. Um, was built over the place of the ascension of Muhammad. Okay, this is a, this is an Islamic um, monument. The Crusaders turned it into we think a baptistry. Right. So here's an Islamic shrine dedicated to the night journey. Right. Muhammad goes to the, the farthest mosque on his trusty steed Al Barak and jumps up into the sky and goes on this grand vision. The Crusaders came turn this into, we think, a baptistry, some kind of Christian monument. This is not to be confused with the Dome of the Chain, which sits right there uh, to the east of the Dome of the Rock. And of course, you have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You've seen this picture, right? You've seen this chart, right? And the Hedicule will sit right in this region here. It looks like this, okay? The Holy Sepulchre was destroyed by Caliph al Hakim in uh, 1009. It was later rebuilt by the Crusaders and has been rebuilt and destroyed, fired over the past thousand years. 
when you go to the church, you'll always suffer her, just follow the crowds and they'll take you right into this. And you can actually wait in line and you can come in this side over here and see the thing. You can come in this side here and see the thing. Greek Orthodox on, on one side and the Coptic Church, Egyptian Christians on the back side. They also built St. Anne's Church. Here's a nice picture of St. Anne's Church. These are new churches built uh, by Crusaders. Um, again, nice picture. If you're, into, if you're doing a paper on architecture, um, you'll want to compare and contrast Crusader Christian architecture right, with um, next week's lecture, which is Mamluk architecture, which is beautiful, beautiful architecture. This is a little more plain, um, but you, you always see the use of this arch here. You'll want to compare anybody art architecture architecture meetings. You want to compare the different kinds of arch, arches. We nerds find this interesting. You don't, so I'll move on. Romanesque style. Here's Saladin. Saladin Yusuf ibn Ayyub, better known as Saladin, was a Kurdish Muslim who became the first Ayyubid Sultan of Egypt and Syria. By the way, the, the dynasty that comes in after the Crusaders are the Ayyubids, and we'll look at them in just a second. Um, he led Islamic forces against the Franks and other European Crusaders. At one point, ruled over Egypt, Syria, Mesopotamia. Um, he led the Muslims against the Crusaders, eventually recaptured Palestine, as we've already said, uh, just, uh, overcame the, the Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, um, and his chivalry has been chronicled um, by many people throughout the years. This is a statue of him in battle position on his, on his horse there uh, in, from Damascus. So what do I want you to know about uh, the Ayyubids? Um, Saladin conquered Jerusalem in 1187. Good day to know. Kind of like the Al-Hakim day, kind of like the other day I want you to know. Um, uh, he won the Horns of Hattin. Basically, the Horns of Hattin victory is kind of like the last major battle, but it was just resailing into Jerusalem. Um, I mentioned that Europeans have been extolling the praise, uh, have been extolling the, the chivalry of uh, Saladin um, over the years. One of the earliest pieces of French literature, where's our French literature people? It's called The Song of Roland, and it actually mentions uh, this, this period of time, Saladin um, and the Crusaders, contrasting one versus the other. So even in the Christian tradition, Saladin was said to be chivalrous, even though he was a Muslim, even though he beat the, the Crusaders. Again, don't buy, don't, in college you're learning to question everything, and I hope you're doing that in this class as well. Don't ever buy the argument that one people was always this way. Don't, don't fall into simplistic, you know, well the Christians were all evil because they were Christian. Within Christianity, they were arguing about whether or not it was okay to go fight in the name of God, whether it was okay to go kill Muslims for the glory of God. And in, within Islam, it was argued whether or not it was okay to fight Christians or to fight Jews. Saladin was one of these that said, no, we can all, I mean, I'm gonna take the city, but I'm not gonna massacre the innocents, I'm gonna, and his chivalry was extolled even, even in Western Christian circles. He went through and purified and reclaimed the Haram, right, the Haram Sharif, 
Um, remember the, the Templars specifically, but many of the Christians went up there and con converted the Dome of the Rock and the Alexa Mosque to Christian shrines. He went back and reclaimed them, um, sanctified them, purified them, and made them once again Islamic uh, monuments. He did not destroy the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. He gave it to the Greek Orthodox Patriarch. So the Greek Orthodox Church takes control of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a kind thing to do. And allows for the settlement of Jews, again in Jerusalem. So for instance, Jews from Ashkelon settled in the Akribi um, quarter, which is the Jew now today the Jewish quarter, beginning in 1190. So actually bringing Jews back into Jerusalem. He wants peace. Took the city, and now he wants peace. So, by the way, this is where the Jews began settling in the, the south, the, the southern end of the modern, the old city of Jerusalem. This is when it began. It's actually an old, old, long process. And then all the Christian topography, all the things that the Christians did to the formerly Islamic city are, are replaced. So it begins to replace Muslim shrines, put Muslim shrines in the place of the Christian. After Salah Anin's um, death, his successors begin to struggle for power. Okay? There's always him fighting after the great leaders. Right? The great leader dies, and Alexander the Great dies, and his kingdom split into four, right? Um, same thing happens here. So let's talk just a little bit about Ayyubid um, Jerusalem. Everybody have this? Ayyubid Islam? Israel-Palestine, 
go to Akko. You can actually sit in what the, the remains of these old Crusader forts that sit right on the ocean. Uh, one of my favorite meals I ever had was sitting in an old Crusader uh, fort, um, looking down into the Mediterranean Ocean, eating a nice falafel, just sitting there enjoying Crusader dinner, um, trying not to think about all the atrocities that went on there, but just kind of saying, wow, this is old. You actually go visit old Crusader forts, but Akko is kind of that last Crusader outpost, and it falls in 1291. And from this point forward, uh, you know, with very, very few exceptions, minor exceptions, um, this becomes an Islamic, Islamic era. We talked about how the, the walls of Jerusalem were dismantled. So even if you could take the city back, right, here in 1219, after the Fifth Crusade, the walls of Jerusalem were dismantled, the people take off. Because there's no more defense, right, if you take a city and maintain its walls, then um, you can at least defend it. But once the walls are dismantled, once the walls of Jerusalem fall down, the people have no protection, so they flee into the countryside. So the population goes down, and Jerusalem becomes, once again, a nothing city. Now, it's got holy shrines, but by this point, Mecca and Medina have all of, you know, the two most important cities in Islam. Uh, Rome has become a very important Christian city. The Christians don't want to keep spilling blood and coming over here. It's very expensive. Western Europe is changing and progressing, and they just let it go. The city, Jerusalem, becomes basically insignificant. And it's, it's uh, ruled by Islam all the way through till the modern period, which we'll begin talking about um, next week. Any questions before we go? On Thursday, probably not next week. We need to come to class on Any questions before we go? You're going to get the rest of your papers back. Um, and I will see you Thursday. Thanks.